Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Ben, so much. Yes. Thanks, Eric. What good worship. Well, hey, before we kick into the sermon, I just want to remind you that Growth Groups is starting next Sunday, the 24th. And if you're not in one, I have five options for you. Well, there's, there's many options, but here's five of them. There's two groups on Sunday morning. Right after service, you can get a plate of food and go to the Fowler-Casey group or go to the Kathy-Greg group. And they're groups right after church. You're, you're free to go to those. We also have a women's group that meets, meets Tuesdays at 1030 at church with child care. Now, you have to attend the group. You can't just drop your children off. You need to go to the group, too. And you don't have to have kids. We have, we have women there that don't have kids, but it's available to you Tuesdays at 1030 here at the church. Um, that's led by Stacy and my wife Amy. And then we have a men's group that meets at noon on Tuesdays here with Tom Flynn, men in the lobby, and another men's group that meets on Glenwood, in Glenwood on Thursday mornings before work. If any of these interest you, listen, just go sign up out at the table, and uh, we'll place you, put on there maybe which one that you heard about that sounded good. But let's get you guys in a group so that midweek or during the week or some other point than just during this service, you can interact with God's people and his message and be challenged. All right? All right, so let's review. I'm, again, if you're new, you have two years of sermons to listen to to catch up to today. Two and a half year um, series, we are in the very end of it. Jesus has preached for three years. He's pilgrimed to Jerusalem with his disciples. He had the Passover meal where he instituted the Lord's communion, the Lord's cup. And um, then he takes Peter, James, and John, his closest disciples, and prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was last week, the cup of wrath. Remember that? Man, if, you just, if you're just looking for a good old-timey sermon, the cup of wrath is available online for you. And Jesus drinks the cup of wrath so that who doesn't have to? Amen. Amen. Well, let, we're going to pick right up. I have so much to get through. I would love to just sit here and chat with you, but we got to get into this, okay? So Luke 22, the, 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 they're, they're sleeping. Peter, James, and John are sleeping while Jesus is praying. And in verse 45, he says, when Jesus rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep. Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray so you won't fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man called Judas, one of the 12, was leading the people. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said, Judas, you're betraying the son of man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike out with swords? Now let me just explain the teams here. We have a team of soldiers. We have a team of disciples. This would not be a very fair fight. This would not be a very long fight. This fight would end very quickly. But the, the disciples, they have Jesus on their side. And so much like when we had John Elway, hey, we're fine, right? It doesn't matter who we're facing. One of them, Peter, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And Jesus answered, no more of this. He touched the man's ear and he healed it. And then he said to the chief priest who had showed up and the officers of the temple and the elders, Am I leading a rebellion that you come here with swords and clubs? Every day I'm in the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour, when darkness reigns. They seized Jesus and led him away to, and took him to the house of the high priest, and Peter followed at a distance. Now there's two things happening here, and there's a certain person we're going to look out today. Look at today, and it's Peter. 
so far he's cut off an ear and now he's falling at a distance. We, we, he's kind of standing out. And Peter often stands out, doesn't he? I mean, if you've read gospel accounts, Peter is this bold, brash, he's prone to action. He's a quick talker. He's a, he doesn't listen all the time. He just speaks out. He's emotional. He jumps out of perfectly good boats to walk on water. He, he's the first to recognize and verbalize that Jesus is the Messiah. But he's also beloved by Jesus. He's one of the closest three of Jesus' disciples. He's had personal mentorship time with the Savior. Jesus loves Peter. He loves him all his flaws, all his foot and mouth disease that he's constantly putting his foot in, all that stuff. Peter has seen extraordinary things. He was one of the few that Jesus chose to go to the Mount of Transfiguration where he got to see the prophet Elijah and the prophet Moses come down and Jesus' face transfigure into his glorious form. Peter's seen it. He's seen people healed. He's seen dead raised, prone to action, bold and verbal. And let's remember just like an hour ago in Matthew 26, we read what Peter said here. Just an hour before Jesus got arrested, Jesus told his disciples, this very night you will fall away on account of me. And Peter replied, "Eh, even if all fall away, I never will. I never will, Jesus. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, looks him right in the eye, this very night before the rooster crows, you, Peter, you will disown me three times. And Peter declared, it's a declaration, he declares, Lord, I am ready to go to prison and die with you before I ever disown you. That was an hour ago. Hour later, he's pulling out swords and cutting off ears. And so, because he's trying to make good on that promise. Hey, I said, I'm go- if we're going down, I'm going down. Woo! The only problem is he's a fisherman and he's, he's a, uh, a disciple. He, he's swung a fishing pole and a net more than he's ever swung a sword. This might be his first ever, it is probably his first ever time swinging a sword at someone for real. And he wanted to go for all the gusto and he hits the ear. It kind of describes Peter. I'm going all in, God, in the ear. And Jesus is like, no. No, let's put the ear back, okay? Okay. <laughs> Try it again. His adrenaline is up. I mean, his adrenaline is spiked. I'm going to die with Jesus, pull out my sword. I don't know what to do with it, but I'm just going to start cutting. He, his adrenaline's up, and then Jesus heals it, and Jesus rebukes him. And, and Matthew records a further rebuke. Put your sword back in its place, Peter. Do you think I couldn't just call on my father, and he would send 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? So Peter, confident and swift to speak and swift to act, is suddenly confused. It must happen this way? Jesus wants to get arrested? He watches as Jesus gives himself up, puts chains on, and willingly walks away. Now now what? I I was ready to... I was ready for this, and he told me no, and he went away willingly. It said it had to happen. What now? What do I do? He's hesitant for the first time, and Matthew and Mark both record that the disciples at this moment scattered and fled. What a terrifying night. The, the person they'd seen conquer the storm and conquer all things gets put in chains, and they know what's going to happen. They know what they've been planning to do to Jesus. It's not like, well, the, the charges might stick. They're going to make sure the charges stick, okay? Luke twenty-two fifty-four. 54. They seized Jesus, and they led him away and took him to the, 
house of the high priest, but Peter followed at a distance. He's impulsive, he's loyal, and he's bewildered, but he's following this procession, and it would have been easy to kind of blend in. It's the middle of the night, and there's lots of people, there's confusion. He kind of skulks around behind and, and, and follows, but he's following at a distance, and this must have been unnerving for Peter. You see, he had always followed right next to his rabbi. He'd always been in step with Jesus, on the inside with Jesus. Jesus gave him identity. Jesus gave him guidance. And at this moment right now, he needed that guidance. What should I do? Jesus rebuked me already. What should I do? Should I run in and declare, it's me, it's Peter, and have me be arrested along? Should I be arrested along with him? Should I run away? He needed Jesus to tell him what to do, but Jesus could not. And so Peter simply followed at a distance not knowing. We pick up the story in Matthew 26. Those who had arrested him took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders were assembled. They were already ready. They were already assembled. Peter falling at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest, and then he entered the private courtyard. He goes through the back alley gate of the high priest's private courtyard onto enemy property where the guards and servants are working. Luke 22 picks it back up. And when some there started a fire in the middle of the courtyard to sit down together, Peter sat down with them. He's at the fire pit of the guards who arrested Jesus. Because it would be way too conspicuous to sit out there and shiver on the side of the courtyard. Well, better, so he goes to the fire and tries to act. Act normal, Peter. Act normal. Everything's Okay. It's April. It's about 40 degrees out at night. Fire's what they do. They're out in the courtyard. Now let me explain this palace so you can, so you can kind of feel and see what's going on. Uh, the, the palace is huge, and there's lots of rooms. A lot of these rooms open up to the courtyard. The courtyard is in the back. It has a private entrance in the alley, and Jesus would have been just inside the palace, connected to the courtyard, being held by soldiers and staring at many priests and elders. In fact, Mark tells us that the whole Sanhedrin was present, which that right there by Jewish context means there were 71 priests, the full Sanhedrin court, the full priestly court. Then add in some elders and other people. Listen, they premeditated this gathering. This is the middle of the night. They were all there waiting, the full court. The Supreme Court gathered in the middle of the night waiting for Jesus to be brought in. They wanted to see this thing done and done all the way through completely. They wanted to wash their hands full of Jesus, and tonight they got it. We start tonight. We settle this thing. Peter's outside in the courtyard, and he can see the proceedings inside. Now, we can assume that he can't hear and make out words, and he can hear talking, but he can't make out words. And what's going on inside, what he's looking at, the backs of these soldiers and the people in there, it's a kangaroo court of of planted witnesses and false reports. And Mark and Matthew tell us that at the end of this kind of court, they blindfold Jesus and take turns slapping him and punching him and then saying, Jesus, hey, prophet, prophesy for us. Who slapped you? Who slapped you that time? Oh, you can't prophesy? You don't know who slapped you? What about, what about a prophet? Like they're just mocking and making fun of him. The priests are exacting their revenge. And Peter can probably see some of what's going on. He might hear some of the louder yells, and he can see now that there's some commotion in there. It's not just a court proceeding now. There's people doing things. There's commotion. Jesus inside getting mocked and humiliated and pummeled, and Peter outside sitting at the fire with the guards. We've all been at a fire. 
flames flicker at your face and they flicker at the face of the person across that lights people's faces at different times. The snapping of the fire, the crackling of the wood, the warmth on your face. He's not present at that fire. See, see, Peter's sitting at that fire, but he is fully straining with every fiber to, to, to try to figure out what's happening in that room with his rabbi. Now, he can't be too conspicuous, but you know he's straining forward, trying to listen with everything he has and looking over there, trying to figure out, should I be in there? I should be in there. I should die with him. What should I do? The Bible says that the, it's, he, they grew tired of slapping Jesus and mocking him. And so they told the guards to beat him. So Peter can now hear the thuds and he can see that there's striking and there's commotion in there and, he, and now he's nervous. He's scared, he's confused. It was not supposed to go like this. Whatever it was, I shouldn't be at the fire of the enemy watching my rabbi get punched in there. This is not how it was supposed to go. What should I do? What should I do? He, all he can think about is what's happening 10 to 15 yards away from where he is. All of his heart, all of his soul, all of his thoughts, all of his hopes are in that room right there. He doesn't know what to do. And it's at this moment, while he is straining to hear and see and understand and try to discern what he should do, that a voice pierces that moment and asks him something directly. His intense focus is brought back to the fire and he sees a servant girl standing there and she says, aren't you with him? He retorts to her as he pauses, his mind comes back to the fire. He says, I don't even know him. Woman, I don't even know him. Vehemently and straight to the point. Woman, I don't know him. Just cutting off all conversation. She walks off and his nerves are shot. Like he's, he's being discovered now. And I, I, I should not have denied him. But it's okay. It was a servant girl. It's just a servant. No big deal. I'll stay here and watch. And he goes back trying to act normal, trying to figure out what's going on over there and what he should do. Small talk around the fire ensues. Peter keeps listening without being too obvious. Maybe 10 minutes later, we don't know. Someone else speaks over the crackling fire, and this time it's one of the guards. Hey, didn't I see you in the garden? Peter's heart had to sink. An eyewitness. If anybody got noticed in the garden, it was the fisherman flailing a sword around at somebody's ear. <laughs> like, I, I kind of stood out there. I might have made a scene. I don't know. We're told it's a relative of the man who Peter cut the arm off. Like, that's who this guy is. Didn't I see you in the garden? It's, it was nighttime, middle of the night. It's full moon, but still it's a lot of chaos. So the guy's just asking, did I see you? And he goes, surely, he, surely, surely you did not see me. And Matthew says that he adds an oath to it, which culturally and contextually would have been a bigger deal than we understand. We go, ah, swear on a stack of Bibles. Ah, oh, I swear on my grandma's grave. No, no, it, Hebrew oaths invoke the name of God and can be considered binding. And so he invokes an oath. He goes above and beyond just to kind of shut this whole thing down. I swear to God that I don't know the man. Ooh. Well, in the Hebrew context, they're like, well, okay. He's serious about that. Okay. It seemed to work. They went back to their small talk, went back to their fire, and now he's just reeling inside. I was going to die for him. What is, what is happening? I'm in over my head. Did I really just say that? 
what's wrong with me? And what, what should I do? It's at this point that Peter is completely internally disoriented. And he's confronted a third time. And this one is different. Come on, surely you're with Jesus. You have his accent. It's Galileans. Like Israel has different parts uh, just like we do. Can I um, see, the, see the microphone for announcements? Um, so if we were, if we were, we would know where someone's from a different place. Um, if we said, if, if, if there was a Peter at the fire and if a man said, I swear to God, I don't know the man. John, would you mind just saying, I swear to God, I don't know the man. I swear to God. Well, hold on. I, I swear to God, I don't know the man. So you can see how just sitting around a fire when somebody talks, you would say, well, if Jesus was from Louisiana, we go, come on. You got to be with him, right? <laughs> Your accent gives you away. You got to be with that southern boy in there, Jesus, right? No, sir, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> don't encourage him. When his amen is four syllables, we know we don't... Thanks, John. Back to the narrative. Peter has denied Jesus two times, and he is completely, remember, internally disoriented and shocked. And the soldier says, come on, you're with him. Your accent gives you away. At this point, his adrenaline and confusion rise, as does his temper. He's Peter. He's emotional. He's angry at these people, yes, but he's angry at himself. And Matthew tells us that Peter begins to call down curses and swears. His anger flares, and the Bible doesn't have it. This is a different translation. I don't even know what the blank you're talking about. I swear, I don't even know that blankety-blanker inside, and may God curse me if I'm lying. I, I promise you it was probably something more close to that than, no, Naeus, I do not know him. There was some swearing in there. Matthew says, man, there was some curses and, and some swears. So let's pause here. See, we read about Peter denying Jesus, and we think this is this, oh, Peter just... The wheels fell off. He's kind of a coward. A servant girl. Like, he's kind of he's cowardly. But let's be reminded who Peter is, okay? B before we keep going. Peter's no coward. He's followed Jesus faithfully. He knows Jesus. He knows Jesus. He stepped out of a boat and walked on water when no one dared to. He spoke up when no one else would. He loved Jesus with all of his heart. He declared he would die with Jesus, and he meant it. And he tried to prove it just an hour ago when he pulled a sword on, a, on, on some soldiers, He's ready to fight to the death. And now, when all the other disciples have fled to their homes, they're all gone. They fled. Here's Peter. In the backyard at the fire pit of the enemy. He is no coward. He's on the enemy's home turf. He's no coward, but he was not prepared for this. See, ironically, I believe if a high priest had approached Peter and said, are you one of Jesus' disciples? If you are, I will take you into custody and you will die with him. I think Peter would have bowed up and said, yeah, I'm Peter, disciple of Jesus, and I'm ready to go with him. I think he would have. But that's not how sin operates. Do you know that? That's not how sin operates in our life. It comes under the radar in a way you didn't expect. A servant girl, a shadow in the courtyard, a nobody compared to the high priests. She catches him off guard. Aren't you with him, she says flatly. 
and taken aback and wanting not to be exposed, he says, I don't even know him. And what about us? See, in this, in this is a somber illustration for, the, for how temptation and sin can overtake us. If someone walked up to you and said, hey, uh, why don't you go have an affair and train wreck your entire life? I hope most of us wouldn't think too long and go, I'm good, no thanks. I'm gonna pass, I'm gonna pass on that one. But if sin crept in and whispered, hey, just click one link, now let's see what's there. Nothing's gonna happen. What are the odds that one would be perhaps said yes to more than the other? You see, some of you aren't being confronted by affairs or on the street or like wild webs of obvious sin, but perhaps in your private life, you're giving in to far subtler things, seemingly, quote, lesser sins. Careful, because we see from Peter that one often leads to the next. You may be in some small denials, but small denials often lead to big denials, and a click link over time can lead you where you never thought you would be. Peter would have gone bravely to the cross next to Jesus had he been confronted full on with the, with the soldiers and the high priests. But he caved to a small betrayal, and it shook him. And it stole his confidence, and it stole his self-control, and it set him up for the next betrayal, and the next betrayal. Beware the small, subtle, private sin and drifting that seems to mean nothing in our life. Because it doesn't stop there. And many of us have a whole file of evidence in our past that we would say, isn't that the truth? But let's not kid ourselves in the present with what we're involved in. Back to our text. Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. He shrugs off the first, he invokes an oath on the second, and he, he swears on the third. Now at this exact moment, there's a succession of things that happen. We have a sequence of events. Peter's words leave his mouth in a curse. And immediately, the rooster crows. Can you imagine this moment for Peter? His face warmed by the fire, his heart warmed by his anger, and his words, they just left his mouth, and he hears the rooster, and suddenly, his blood and his heart go ice cold. His temper is replaced by freezing dread. He remembers the promise he made to Jesus just hours ago. Though everyone else may, may leave, I, I will go with you to prison and death. He remembers Jesus looking him right in the face and saying, Peter, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. You will disown me and say you don't even know me. Peter's heart sinks. Could it be that I just deny him three times? As the shuddering realization hits him and his jaw goes slack and his eyes wide, you can imagine all the anger, all the fire, all the pretense is gone from him. In that one rooster crow, he looks away from the fire and the person speaking over to where he's been watching Jesus get beaten. And the Bible is very clear on this point in multiple gospels that at that moment, Jesus on trial turns from the Sanhedrin, turns from what is being done to him, looks out to the courtyard and their eyes meet. 
He denies the rooster crows. He looks and Jesus, it says he turns and looks directly at Peter. In his divinity, he knew right where Peter was and he turned, him faces and, turned his face and their eyes locked. For Jesus, probably a moment of compassion, but for Peter, a moment of horror. I denied you three times. It says that he drops all pretense of trying to fit in at the fire. He stumbles to the gate and he flees. And it says he weeps bitterly. And the word here for this is not quiet. It's not controlled. This is that ugly cry. This is that cry where you just yell, no, I didn't know. That did not just happen. He's so angry at himself, so let down, and he just keeps playing over and over and over that picture of Jesus, probably bloody, looking at him. For Peter, that moment would have haunted him. That would be something that Peter would never forget the rest of his life, that moment face-to-face with his Savior. Three years faithfully following and walking behind Jesus, and in one moment of weakness, You ever have moments in your life like that? Where in one fell swoop, years of your life just ceased to exist? All his following, all the miracles, all the laughing in the upper room, all the laughing and talking to disciples, all the tears, all seeing all the things done, all the challenges, all the mentorship, all of it meaningless in the horror of that moment seeing Jesus bloodied face to face as he denied him. The words of the betrayal and, and the eye contact, this was, G, this was Peter's last moment with Jesus before Jesus died. That moment would haunt Peter. Over the next day and a half, as Jesus was wrung out and tortured, Peter would whip, weep bitterly at the thought that it ended like that. Peter denied Jesus, their eyes met, and he never got to make it up with him. He never got to say he was sorry. He never got to explain himself. He never got to just say, Jesus, I love you. That is how it ends with Jesus and Peter. And this, for us, it would be like this. I can only think it would be like, to bring up some illustration and to reach out at it, it would be like telling your mom or your dad or your spouse, I hate you. And looking in their eye and seeing that sink in. And then as they leave, they perish in a car accident. You would never forget that face, would you? You would never forget what you said, would you? It would haunt you. That was your last moment before they died. And that's what Peter's left with. That's that's what he's tortured with. That's why he's weeping bitterly. Do you see the torment he he would be living in? Jesus was tortured and killed of the evening of that day. but it helps us kind of see Peter in a new light. It makes things make sense as we continue forward. Three days from that moment, women would run into the disciples and say they saw an angel saying that Jesus was alive. And Luke records that the disciples don't believe him and think it's nonsense. But the next verse says this, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Do you see why he probably when it was nonsense, when it wasn't true, he had to find out. He had to know if there's any chance, I wanna talk to him. He runs to the tomb, he's so motivated to see Jesus again. 
He's grasping at straws, but maybe, maybe he can tell Jesus he's sorry. After that, Jesus did get to see, Peter did get to see Jesus. It's recorded that he, re, he appeared in their room, but there was no discussion. Peter just, I wonder if he like kind of stood toward the back of the room. Am I still, have you ever been in a room you shouldn't be in? Should I still be here? Am I, am I still involved? Am I still a disciple? I'm telling you, by rabbinic tradition, if your disciple denies knowing you, disowns you, you disown him. By rabbinic tradition, Peter is out. <laughs> it's with those kind of thoughts that we find Peter days later. Jesus has rose from the dead. They've seen him in the upper room. And we find Peter where we found him in Luke 5. Peter goes full circle. We find Peter in the first place we found him. Where did we find him? Fishing. Now this tells us a lot about how Peter views himself at this point. I was a fisherman. I was a disciple. I'm a fisherman again. Peter, who's seen great things, who was called to be a disciple, who was called by Jesus, the rock I will build my church on, has gone back to his old life. The rock has crumbled. That man is dead and gone. I'm going to go back to what I know. John 21 says, he tells the disciples, I'm going fishing, and a few of them go with him. Surprisingly, they caught nothing. It seems to be they're always bad fishermen. Read, about, read it, it's true. But then, it, you should quit your day job and be a disciple if you cannot catch fish, okay? But then, while they're fishing, they've been fishing all night. This is what, they fish all night, and they catch nothing. And there's someone on the shore who's Jesus, but he's hiding his identity from them. And the man calls out, friends, caught anything? Which, I love that question, when I've caught something. And when I've caught nothing, I can't stand that question. I always just answer the same. We're doing okay. <laughs> they answer, nope. Haven't caught a thing. And then this man has the nerve, the gall to say, just throw your nets on the other side and you'll catch them. Really? <laughs> really good, sir? I'm a, we're, we're fishermen by trade, and you don't think that it didn't occur to us that we should take the net and put it down over here? You, you think that's where they are? <laughs> Is that what, that's where they are? I mean, I can't imagine, they're just like, they're sleep deprived, they do it. They put it down there, and when it, they start pulling it up, it's so full of fish, they can't even pull the net up. I think we're hung up on something. no. That's a whole lot of fish. Now, that moment must have been a trigger for them because that's happened kind of before. In fact, John, it says, looks to Peter and says, it's, it's the Lord. And John 21, seven says, as soon as Peter heard John say that, he put on his cloak and jumped in the water. I mean, like, bam, bam, bam. He is in the drink. He is swimming with all he can. If it's Jesus, I'm going. Now, the disciples, they couldn't pull up the net with Peter. We're not pulling it up without Peter. So they just kind of hold the net and old man in the sea style just start they paddling to the shore with all the fish. Just we, We'll take it with us. But let's get to Jesus, right? 
I can see this, there's Peter swimming in his garments and this boat, they're both just going so slow and there's Jesus on the shore just like, there's my boys. <laughs> the fate of the gospel rests on these people. <laughs> they get to the shore and Jesus has a fire going with some fish on it. Now this next part is hilarious. Truly it is. Jesus tells them, bring me some of your fish. He already has fish. But he says, bring me some of your fish. They tow in the hall, and the Bible states it very clearly. It was full of large fish, not small, and there was 153 of them. This is such a guy thing. Like, they lay, you ever been to Alaska? I've never been. They go to Alaska, and they catch all those fish, and they line them up, and they go, they get a picture. Like, they line them up. They line 153 large fish. Jesus is here. But did you see the 153 large fish? <laughs> Jesus, just so you have eternity to wait. Hold on. We have 153 fish. They counted the fish. Now, I think Jesus kind of helped lead them into this moment. Hey, bring me some of yours. Because that, before that, it was just a, a net under the water. Let's be honest. You don't count unless it's a record of records. Had they just pulled up kind of a normal size net and they go, kind of a half smile, that's eh, about 70. I caught 70 last spring. I know, I know what 70 looks like. You catch a nice big trout you've caught before, and you say, oh, that's not bad, kind of small. It's about a pound, I guess, eyeball. You hook into a big brown. <laughs> and it's massive. I'll tell you what. You have the guide hold it. You, you hold it so you can see the girth. You, have, you take pictures of it, the sun. And then, and then, you send that picture to your coworkers and your friends, and you like, and then you tell, so you tell the admin, make sure it's on the front of the bulletin. <laughs> and then, and then you get, when, you, when it's big, you get real precise. You, it's eight pounds now? It was seven and a half when you first called me. <laughs> It was seven when he first told us, John. It's, a, it's eight, eight and eight. It's eight, maybe eight and one-sixteenth. I don't know. It's, you get real precise. You get real precise. And the disciples are in on this. It's 153. And they make sure they put the word lar large fish. Like they do this. Like if there was a bulletin, that's going on the front of it. Oh, I love you, man. All right. This next part is beautiful. More beautiful than the fish, Charlie, but it is beautiful fish. It says, when they stopped eating, so there's Jesus, Peter, and John, and a few other disciples. Say six people around the fire, I don't know. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my lambs. It's a very confusing little thing here. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter answered, yes, Lord, I know, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, take care of my sheep. A third time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because he asked a third time. He says, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know I love all, you know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
This is called the reinstatement of Peter, but it doesn't feel that good, especially to Peter. Obviously, it doesn't feel good. Jesus, let's just, there's a lot going on here. Let's look at the language for a second. Jesus asked the first time, do you love me more than these? But what he says there in the language is, do you agape me? Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? The highest form of love. Without condition, do you love me? And Peter, that had to just nail him. I can't answer yes. I obviously have conditions on my love. Peter can't answer, I agape you. He says, yes, Lord, I love you. But the word he uses is phileo. It's brotherly love, mutual respect. It's admiration. Jesus says, do you agape me? And he says, I phileo you. That is huge. Jesus then has this strange and cryptic task based on that. Well, then feed my lambs. Then he says, second time, Peter, do you agape me? Yes, Lord, I phileo you. Then shepherd my sheep. Again, agape, phileo, sheep. A third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? But he doesn't use agape. I believe this is why it hurt Peter. He says, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? Do you have admiration and respect for me? Now, why did Jesus change his question from agape to phileo? Does he lower his standards? No, he does not lower his standards. But I wanna say this. He doesn't lower his standards. Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He is meeting Peter where he is. Jesus goes to Peter's shoreline, to Peter's fishing, and he goes to where Peter's heart is stuck. When Peter can't bring himself to say, I love you unconditionally, Peter goes to, or Jesus goes to his level and says, do you love me? Do you phileo me? You see, Jesus does this all the time. He does it in your life and my life all the time. Psalm 18 says, God reached down from on high and took me and took, grabbed me and rescued me from deep waters. This is what God does. Jesus himself came down out of glory and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Jesus meets us where we are. Peter could not say, I agape you. So Jesus came to want Peter's level. He does it for Peter. He does it for you. Listen, Jesus doesn't wait. He's not waiting for you to get out of your messy relationship. Jesus isn't waiting for you to get out of your slimy addictions. Jesus isn't waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's not waiting for you to stop all your secret sin. He's not waiting for you to untangle that web of lives you find yourself in. He's not waiting for you to come up to his level and go, now you're acceptable to me. He says, in your addiction, in your messy relationship, in your web of lies, in your secret sin, I love you. And he comes down to where we are and he redeems and rescues us from the pit. He calls us out of it. He's not waiting for you to clean yourself. He's calling you and he will take care of the cleaning. Jesus coming to earth to die by its very nature is God coming to our level. And here in a beautiful moment, Jesus goes to Peter's level and says, do you love me three times? 
Do you see this? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? One for each denial. But there's something else going on here that we gloss over time and time again. This one I, I missed. He says, the first one, he says, do you love me more than these? Let me just ask you, who are the these he's referring to? We think the disciples, don't we? How awkward would that be to sit around the fire? John, Peter, Jesus, three more disciples. So Peter, do you love me more than these? The other guys are like, what? <laughs> and Peter's like, I do. And you're like, what? <laughs> time and time again, they argue about who loves the most, who's the greatest, who's gonna be the greatest, and Jesus shuts it down every time. There's consistent and constant um, competition between the disciples and Jesus has none of it. So am I, am I to believe that here at the very end in a beautiful moment when he's reinstating Peter, he goes, Peter, do you love me more than these, these five right here? And he says, yes. And he goes, okay. And the other five are like, what about us? It would immediately have created the competition that Jesus over and over and over stopped them from having. When Jesus asks, who do you, or he asks him, do you love me more than these? I personally, I don't think he's referring to the disciples. I don't think he's putting everybody on blast like that. I don't think he's doing that at this fire pit. Do you know what I think he's talking about? Do you love me more than these? I believe he's talking about the very thing he just had them count and celebrate. You love me more than these fish? Now, what were those fish to him? First of all, that's the biggest haul he's ever had. That's the greatest earthly success he's ever had as a fisherman. That's the, that's the top of his profession. And those are the symbol of his, of, his, of his old life. Those are the symbol of everything that he had before Jesus and apparently what he thinks he's gonna have after. Do you love me more than these? Peter, do you? You wanted to go fishing today. You wanna to go back to your old life. Do you love me more than these? You know I do. Really? Then feed my sheep. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. Now it makes sense, the whole sheep thing. Now it makes sense, while at the end of every exchange is, do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, then feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, then be a shepherd. Because he's saying, listen, do you love me more than your old life of this? Yes, then come with me and feed my sheep. Purpose for purpose. Peter, I called you beyond fish. I called you beyond this old life. I called you from this shoreline three years ago and I'm calling you from it again. Do you love me more than these? Yes, I do. Then I give you a new purpose. Go. Feed my sheep. You see, a, sh a fisherman, he called them to be fishers of men at one point, right? And a fisherman can catch a fish and it's done. He's caught it. But a shepherd, He'd heard Jesus teach a lot on shepherds and sheep. A shepherd has to know his sheep. They know him. They know his voice. He knows them by name. He knows which ones are overly anxious. He knows which ones are in turmoil. He knows which ones lag behind. He knows when one is sick or in pain. He knows how they're, he knows them. It's a different purpose and calling. When Jesus, he, he is inviting Peter in this dialogue to live something else too. In this dialogue is the Shema, the ancient prayer that Jesus said sums up the whole Bible. Jesus said, love God and love people sums up the entire Bible. Jesus is God and the sheep are people. Do you love God? Yes, love people. Peter, I'm calling you to a grand purpose. 
Do you love me more than this life? Do you love me more than what you had purpose for yourself? Yes, then go, love my people. He calls him back to the greatest thing, love God, love people. If you claim to love God, then you are called to love people. It goes part and parcel. They are together in that exchange. He finds Peter on the shore of his old life and calls him back to the glorious calling of bringing hope to a world that needs it. He calls him back to his original intent. Peter, love me, love God. Peter, love people. Don't ever forget this lesson, Peter. Love God, love people. Orchard, how many of us once were on fire for God? How many of us were once on fire for God at some point? But, but the passion was high, but then sin crept in. Our confidence began to crumble, and the passion began to wane. I mean, if we just talked, we would say, man, there were some golden years of my faith, but these aren't them. Have we gone back to our old life? Have we gone back to our old ways? See, God called us to a brave and glorious calling, but we've gone back like Peter to what we are comfortable with. That's what Peter did. We, tr- we traded in our life of following Jesus for a safe life of not risking our reputation for his kingdom. Jesus said to Peter, he comes to his level, to his shore and says, leave your old life behind. He says, your comfort zone is killing you. An orchard, our comfort zone is killing us. When he first called Peter, it says this back in Luke 5, they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. The nets being the, the symbol of their old life. And some of us have gone back and dragged, grabbed the nets and tried to keep following. There's no halfway in between. We either we're in our old life or we're dragging nets into a new life. God says, leave it. There are greater purposes for you. Jesus says, yes, you've betrayed me with your words. Yes, you've betrayed me with your actions. Yes, you've been silent in front of others. Yes, you're afraid to follow because you know you'll mess up again. I know all that and I'm still calling you and I still love you. That's what he says. He says, do you love me more than your success, more than your career, more than your way of living, more than your safe plan, your retirement, your routine? Because I'm calling you beyond all that to something far greater. Step out of the safety and love people because you love me. Don't love people that you like to love. Love people. Love people that are hard to love. Open your mouth and speak about me. Invite people to meet me. I called you to a life greater than this little boat and these fish in your comfort zone. Orchard, what is your boat? What is your success? What is your fish? Where are you playing it safe? And by playing it safe, we're denying, the, we're denying Jesus and the life that he's calling us to. Then Jesus said something finally that was just all Peter wanted to hear. All that reinstatement stuff that just happened, this is what he wants to hear, what's about to happen. He then said to Peter, he says two words. Follow me. These are the first two words that meant something that Jesus said to Peter. These are the words that a rabbi would say to somebody that says, come be my disciple. Walk with me. I believe you can be like me. I believe in you. Come, follow me. He thought that dream was dead. He thought his betrayal and sin disqualified him from ever following closely again. He thought he would be following at a distance the rest of his life. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Come, follow me. And they walk. 
And ladies and gentlemen, no matter what you've done and no matter where you've been and no matter how far you've drifted and how dirty it is and how lost and how ugly, he still looks you in the eye and he says, follow me. Follow me. Peter follows Jesus, and Jesus leaves after a bit, and this time he leaves for good. He leaves the gospel in the hands of these 11 people. That was the year 11, that was, let, me just, let me finish with this. That was the year 33 AD. Do you see how much Peter had gone through in those years? And I wonder what he went through after that. I wonder how much he was haunted by the gaze of Jesus and the betrayal, or how much he was strengthened by the look of Jesus that said, do you love me? Yeah, follow and feed my sheep. Follow me. See, Peter changed after this. Peter, the church history kind of leads us to believe that Peter traveled around preaching, but then started the church in Rome with Paul. And there he pastored and, and apostled. The Bible doesn't tell us much more about Peter, but we do have um, his books that he authored. You can go read his words in the Bible. And there's evidence from historians that we get a glimpse of something 31 years past that moment on the beach. Go 31 years in the future. We find Peter. See, we see Nero on the throne, a conniving emperor with a great sense of authority and opulence. His mother killed his political enemies and manipulated everybody else to get him on the throne, and then he in turn killed her. It's a great guy. On the 18th of July, AD 64, 64 AD, a fire broke out in Rome called the Great Fire of Rome because it destroyed so much. And reports by many historians point to Nero for starting it to burn down sections of the city so he could rebuild his, his palatial thing, his, his play, and his, his colossus of Nero that he wanted. But Nero couldn't have the general public thinking that he started the fire. So in the weeks and months that followed, he publicly blamed the Christians and he riled up the crowd. And to appease them, he launched a fierce persecution by executing them publicly and violently, throwing them to animals, burning them, and crucifying and, and in mid-October of 64 AD, an old man is brought from his prison cell. He was a leader in the church of Rome, a very influential man. And perhaps he stood in front of Nero, the most powerful man on the planet. But the old preacher was unruffled. He had stood before somebody far more powerful. And when given the chance to deny Jesus and deny his faith, the old man just had to quietly laugh. <laughs> he had to quietly laugh to himself, deny Jesus. He would not do that. In fact, every time he heard a rooster crow, he was reminded that he would never do that. So they sentenced the old man to death by being crucified as a way of mocking his faith. And they led him out and the man saw the cross and he knew he could not do it. He could not be crucified like that. And I'm sure Nero and his guards thought they had a victory in hand as the man saw his mode of execution and was about to renounce his faith. This would be good. He'll renounce his faith. But instead, the man says, I cannot be crucified like my Savior. I am unworthy of that honor. Crucify me upside down. And I left out one tidbit from John 21 previously. On the beach, on the beach with Peter, Jesus says this. Very curious. Makes sense now. I tell you, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And many years later, that very Peter, that old preacher, they dressed him in prison rags, they led him to the cross, and they stretched out his hands for the nails and they crucified him upside down because denying Jesus just wasn't in it anymore for Peter. 
he would not deny his Savior. Peter at one point was an impulsive failure who couldn't say or do anything right. And he denied Jesus time and time again with his words and his actions. And Orchard, we're all Peters today. All of us, we all deny him by our actions. We deny him by our silence to the world. We deny him by our private sins. We are Peter. We fail. Where in your life are you denying Jesus even now? And Jesus would come up to you on your shore and your life and your comfort zone, a life you've created for yourself, and he would say, do you love me? Well, of course we love Jesus. We love him, don't we? It's easy. Well, yeah, I love you. Love people. Do you love me? Yeah, Jesus, I love you. Love people. Do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Love people. And then he says this, get up and follow me. Orchard, we are all Peter. The offer for Peter is the same as the offer to you. Wherever you have drifted today, whatever drift you come from and find yourself right here, Jesus says, I love you. I don't care about your addiction, your relationship, you're this, you're that, you're that. Follow me, come to me. In me is hope, in me is peace, in me is power, in me is freedom, in me is forgiveness. And Orchard, here's the thing, there is a world of people out there that are broken that need Peters who love God and love people. Let's be those people. Let's love God. Let's love people. As we go to communion, the symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection, I want you to hold that Again, it's an open table. Anybody can take it. I want you to hold the, the symbol of his body and the symbol of his blood in your hand. Thank him for what he did to set you free. And in that, no, in that is an offer of all forgiveness and a call, follow me. Do you love him more than these? Amen.